This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. I'm delighted today to have Gary Tobes. He's an award-winning science and health journalist, co-founder and director of the Nutrition Science Initiative. He is the author of The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat, and Good Calories, Bad Calories, and most recently, The Case for Keto. He's a former staff writer for Discover and correspondent for Science. He has written three cover articles on nutrition and health for the New York Times Magazine, and his writing has been featured in The Atlantic, Esquire, and numerous best of anthologies, including the best of the best American science writing. Welcome, Gary. It's a pleasure to connect with you today. Uh, Thank you for having me. I would love to understand and appreciate how an engineer got from, you know, doing an undergrad and graduate degree in engineering, kind of ending up in science writing. Was that just a natural extension of graduate school or how did that process actually happen? Well, first of all, I wasn't very good, you know, B student in physics and engineering. So that was clearly, I even had an advisor who, after I got a C minus in quantum physics in college, suggested I find another career path. I was always interested in journalism, so I went to journalism school at Columbia, and then when I uh, got out, the jobs I could get were science writing. I wanted to be an investigative reporter. As a science writer at Discover Magazine, it turned out that there's a lot of very sort of questionable, poorly done science out there. You know, we see this condensed now with the COVID debates. Back then, it was a little easier to get a handle on, and so I started. My first two books were about uh, first physicists and then uh, chemists and nuclear physicists who discovered non-existent phenomena. I became obsessed with how hard it is to do science right. So that's sort of the, you know, whatever people think of my nutrition and chronic disease writing, I think it's safe to say I'm one of the world's leading experts on bad science or what physicists would have called pathological science. So after my second book, my physicist friend said, if you're interested in bad science, you should look at the stuff in public health. It's terrible. And so I moved into public health, writing mostly for the journal Science in the early 90s. And by the late 90s, I had stumbled on the nutrition world and did a series of investigative articles, first on this question of whether salt causes high blood pressure, which is still like just bedrock conventional nutrition wisdom. And there's just the evidence to support that belief is just at best ambiguous. And then the the issue of dietary fat causing heart disease. And again, interesting hypothesis that doesn't pan out. It's like the, you know, guy named Ansel Keys in the 50s has this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. And the government funds a few hundred million dollars worth of studies. And the studies don't actually confirm the hypothesis, but we're so invested in it. You know, when your government spends $200 million, or in this case, uh, there was $150 million on one study, $112 million on another. The assumption is, unless the study confirms a hypothesis, you wasted the money. It's a very odd way to think about it. Anyway, that got me into obesity and what the cause of obesity is. And I had this first infamous New York Times Magazine article, and then Spent five years on my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and I have not been able to get out. I'm like Al Pacino in Godfather 3. I'll be writing about this until I fall off a stool someday, hopefully later rather than sooner. Well, I'm so glad that you're doing the due diligence because as a clinician, you know, my whole career was in ER medicine and cardiology, first as a nurse, later as a nurse practitioner. And for me, so much of what I was telling my patients uh, was what we were conventionally taught in school, which I even attended a top research university on the East Coast. And even we weren't getting it right in terms of what we were suggesting to our patients. And I'm so glad that there are people like yourself that are doing the due diligence so that it can help, you know, shift perspectives, because obviously with escalating rates of obesity, largely tied into the foods that we're choosing to eat. It's really of paramount importance. So let's focus first on why calories are irrelevant. I think that this is probably one of the most common, I know you're smiling, one of the most common questions I get from other women is, well, how many calories do you eat a day? And how many calories do you suggest I eat? And I tell them, I don't track any of that. 
I'm much more focused on macros because that's what our body recognizes as opposed to this unit of measurement. So I would love for you, I know Dr. Fung dispelled this also when I interviewed him, but I'd love to get your take on it as well. Yeah. And it's the most, it's so the essence of how we think about obesity, right? Is, uh, and then fat accumulation is caused by taking in more food than with more energy than we expend. And then we get, you know, calories are the way we count energy. This idea goes back to the early years of the 20th century, back when the only thing they could measure was how much energy was in foods and how much energy people expended. So they thought the disconnect, the difference might explain obesity. And again, it was an incredibly naive way to think about it. So best medical research at the time in the 1920s, 1930s was going on in Europe and Germany and Austria. And in Germany and Austria, the research was saying, look, we know that obesity, fat accumulation is controlled by hormones. Like men and women fatten differently. You know, we go through puberty, we lose fat and gain muscle. You guys gain fat and you gain fat in very specific places. You know, you get pregnant, you put on fat and you put on fat below the waist. Because if you put on fat above the waist like men do with the babies, you would be unbalanced. So evolution or nature, whatever, designed it so that you can add fat. So when the baby's born, you could feed the baby. And you've got fuel. Even if there's a famine when the baby's born, you have fuel available that you've stored so you can feel. And it's, you know, so all this is controlled by hormones. But if you have excess fat, the idea it's got that way just because you eat too much. Yeah, the argument I've been making and that Jason has been making is, look, clearly all of this is a hormonal problem. And there are other ways to think about it, sort of, and I do this in the case for keto to quantify how silly this calorie problem is. So, for instance, you know, if you've gained 30 pounds of fat between high school and, say, 45 years old, and your best friend has remained lean, the difference is, is that you stored 30 calories a day in your fat tissue, 30 calories a day that they didn't. So you're overeating, however much you're supposed to overeat or however much you're supposed to control your caloric intake. The problem is, is that your fat tissue is holding on to 30 calories every day too much. Like a, after you eat, the fat you eat gets stored temporarily. So say during the course of the day, maybe you eat 1,500, 2,000 calories and half of that's from fat. So your fat tissue will store 750 calories. And at the end of the day, it's only released 720 of them to be used for fuel. And the 30 that's left is the difference between you being overweight and your best friend being lean. So now you can ask the question, what controls whether or not those 30 calories get out or not? And that's a hormonal question. It's not a how much you ate or exercised or counting your calories question. Because you could count your calories and your fat tissue will still trap that fat. So... If you think about it like that, and the medical community religiously refuses to do so, and then you're asking what hormones connect what you eat to how much fat you'll accumulate. And that, that's been known for 50 to 100 years, depending on how you want to look at it. And it's primarily the hormone insulin. So now we've gone from talking about calories to talking about hormones. And it's absolutely critical. I mean, unfortunately, whether or not people want to, you know, change and shift the dogma that they grew up with, I'm I'm a huge disruptor. I am someone that constantly is asking why, which sometimes gets me in trouble. But I think it's really critically important that people understand that, you know, a lot of the fat shaming that we see here, you know, not just in the United States, I know that it was, you know, really prevalent when we were traveling abroad. Uh, but when we're thinking about, how that actually takes place. It's not about someone not having enough initiative. It's not about someone being lazy. It's really about this hormonal dysregulation that goes on in the body. And you mentioned insulin. And unfortunately, I think insulin's gotten a bad rap. Insulin isn't all bad. And so, you know, when you're talking or you're unpacking this whole concept of what's driving obesity, let's talk a little bit about insulin's roles in the body and how it impacts our ability to, you know, utilize, you know, fat for energy and store fat for energy. Yeah, I want to get back to one point, though, you made about fat shaming. Mm -hmm. Because one of the problems, and this is an argument I also make in the book, once we decided that obesity is caused by eating too much, and then you quantify the number, right? So like I said, you're 30 pounds overweight, your best friend's lean, you stored 30 calories a day in your fat tissue that he or she didn't, that's 
it's like three bites of food. It's two almonds, a quarter of a tablespoon of olive or a teaspoon of olive oil. I mean, it's just, it's a tiny amount of food. And so then the natural thing to ask is, why did you store it and somebody else didn't? And so if you think it's caused because you ate too much, then clearly you just don't care enough, right, to eat less or you're too ignorant to realize there's no way to explain that without shaming the person who's got the excess weight. And if you think, you know, there's this counter argument that it's a hormonal issue, then, well, some people are predisposed to get fat and other people aren't. There's just no way to get around it. I had a brother. I have a brother who was always lean. I was always thick. We were built differently. There's a wonderful new book out. I mean, a heartbreaking book called uh, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by a young woman named Aubrey Gordon. And she suffers with severe obesity. And she says, look, some people are just built fat. That's all there is. It's not nothing in almost any food environment, any modern food environment. They're going to have excess fat. It's not about, yeah, as you put it, it's not that they're lazy. It's not that they're gluttons. It's not that they don't pay attention to how much they eat. Usually people who suffer with obesity pay more attention to what they're eating than the rest of us because they have to. Roxanne Gay writes about this in her memoir, Hunger, when she's going on a plane. A friend offers her, says, you want to, you know, potato chips to go on the plane? And Roxanne weighed over 300 pounds. She said, no, you don't understand. People like me can't, we can't be seen eating in public, right? Because then people draw conclusions. So the very nature of this idea that obesity is caused by taking in too many calories and we expend leads to all the fat shaming. Whereas if we had accepted this idea that it's a hormonal dysregulation, then, you know, then the job is understand what hormones regulate fat accumulation. Now we're back to insulin, which was your question. So I think of insulin as the hormone that regulates, a hormone that regulates fuel partitioning in the body. So you eat a mixed meal with fats, carbohydrates, and proteins, and your body wants to maximize utility of all those macronutrients. And Fat's terrific for storage because it's the densest calories. Protein is used for repair and growth of cells and tissues and membranes. Um, carbohydrates have no use in the human body except for energy. And when your carbs are high, blood sugar is high. That's a sort of toxic state. That's most of the damage done in diabetes is done from high blood sugar. So your body is working very hard to keep blood sugar under control, which means the insulin is telling your fat to store the fat you've consumed. Remember I said that virtually all of, most of the fat you eat during the day gets stored for the short term immediately. And then it's telling your, the protein to be used for growth and repair. So it's serving sort of as a growth factor and it's stimulating other growth factors like insulin-like growth factor. And then it's telling the body to burn carbohydrates. And the problem when it becomes a negative thing is when we have too, when we become insulin resistant and we have too much insulin elevated in our bloodstream. And then it's constantly telling your fat to hold on to fat cells and burn carbs for fuel in a mode where you're storing fat for far more of the day than you normally would. And so it's a, you know, it's a hormone that, has, that we can't live without, clearly, as in type 1 diabetes. It's extremely beneficial, but when it's dysregulated, then it starts to do damage, and that damage includes excess fat accumulation and eventually manifests as diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Now, do you think a lot of the shift here in the United States was a direct result to the methodologies of Ansel Keys. I know that we've had several guests that have touched on Ansel Keys, um, including Nina Takeholtz, whose podcast will be released tomorrow. But I reflect back on how much his perspectives and policies really have been profoundly detrimental to the health of us here in the United States. And so I would love for you to kind of touch on, you know, his shift on not wanting to focus on sugar being this profoundly inflammatory substance and instead wanting to bastardize fats. And let me be very clear to all the listeners. I always feel like I have to say this, you know, I was schooled in the nineties and started practicing as an MP in, in the two thousands. And we were still at that point in time, especially in cardiology saying fat's bad. You have to use all these fake fats you know, now I know better, but I think it's really important because those changes, you know, shifting focus from 
sugars to fat bastardization has forced, you know, the processed food industry and forced all of us to think of fat as a bad thing. And so in many ways, when I reflect back on 80s, 90s and beyond that start of a lot of these policy changes where they want us eating heart healthy grains and people are hungry all the time because they're not eating much fat in their diet. It's very carbohydrate focused. And so I would love to get your, you know, take and perspective on what you think of Ansel Key's policies. <laughs> this is what got me into obesity. So while I was doing this article on dietary fat, which took me the better part of a year, it took me a year. In effect, I interviewed 145 researchers and administrators for one magazine article in the journal Science and realized as I was doing this, began to learn about the influence of Ansel Keys and others, that there was, the, the, again, the, the idea that dietary fat caused heart disease, that saturated fat raises LDL cholesterol and that uh, increases, causes atherosclerosis, was an interesting hypothesis that had been tested uh, in numerous trials. And, you know, a few of the trials suggested that people who ate a lot of saturated fat compared to unsaturated fats had more heart disease, but they also tended to have more can or less heart disease. Well, a few of anyway, some of the studies confirmed this idea that saturated fat was bad, and some of them refuted the idea that saturated fat was bad, but the government was so invested. As I was doing that, there was a researcher, an administrator at the National Institutes of Health who told me we were actually having coffee at the Starbucks at the corner of Falls Road and River Road in Potomac in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. And he said, look, you know, we thought when we put the country on a low-fat diet beginning in 1984, we thought if nothing else, we would solve the obesity problem because we're putting them on the least you know, the fat is the densest calories in the diet. There are nine calories per gram of fat compared to four. So if you eat less fat, we'll consume less food and you'll weigh less. And when we, that was, you know, our fallback position. We didn't know what it would do for heart disease. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. 
I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. You know, we were clear about the studies being ambiguous, but we figured it'll make people leaner. And if people get leaner, they'll have less heart disease. And instead we have an obesity epidemic and people ate more carbs. They replaced the fat with carbs and they got fat. So that was when I started this New York Times Magazine story, that was my one of my hypotheses. The idea was what's the cause of the obesity epidemic? And here I had this administrator, the National Institutes of Health, suggesting to me that it was their policy to tell the whole country. And so what had happened in the U.S. and the Ansel Keys story is Ansel Keys, University of Minnesota nutritionist, comes along in the 1950s with this hypothesis that dietary fat causes heart disease. It's based on, you know, work he and his wife had done in Naples, sort of very amateurish studies where you look at people with heart disease and people with that, you measure their cholesterol and you get some idea what they're eating and you decide this is an interesting hypothesis. And Ansel Keys is a very energetic, motivated man who wouldn't take no for an answer. He's the kind of man that would be described as not suffering fools gladly. And he would define a fool as anyone who disagreed with him. And he just, through force of will, convinced the government and the research community that this hypothesis was almost assuredly right. And they just had to do the right clinical trials or studies, and they could demonstrate that it was right. And it turned out that it conflicted in time with the British hypothesis, which is that so it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, in science, I would someday like to write a book about good science and bad science. And in science, the critical thing to do is to ask the right question, because the question you ask determines the answer you get. So what Ansel Keys wanted to know was why was there so much heart disease in the United States, in Minnesota, where he was practicing medicine as well as being a you know nutritionist, and maybe in Italy, why did the rich people have more heart disease than the poor people? And so this is a question he asked. And the answer was, well, because we eat too much saturated fat and dairy and meat. And so, and that raises our cholesterol. But simultaneously, there was a British hypothesis. And the British had the British Empire. So they had colonial and missionary hospitals all around the world. And all around the world, they were seeing the same thing, which is regardless of the population that was being served. So it could be agrarian populations in Asia or pastoral populations living on, you know, uh, cattle in Africa or Inuit populations living on whale meat and caribou and seal and wherever it is, they were healthy until they transitioned to the Western diet. And then once they have the Western diet, then they start manifesting heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, this whole cluster of chronic diseases. And the transition to the Western diet was basically you had sugar and white flour to whatever their baseline diet was. So their baseline diet could be very high in saturated fat, like the pastoralists. It could be high in unsaturated fat, like the Inuits. It could be relatively low in fat, like the Southeast Asians. And you add sugar and white flour, and you get obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and a whole cluster of chronic diseases that became known as Western diseases. So the British had this theory that the problem is sugar and flour, right? So first by a U.S. naval researcher named Peter Cleave, I mean, a British naval researcher, and then John Yudkin, uh, the most prominent British and European nutritionist, took it up and pushed it as a sugar hypothesis, sugar only. Pissed Cleave off because Cleaver said, look, uh, Cleave said, he was testifying to the U.S. Congress, and he said, I could pick the, you know, the hundred fattest men in a five-block neighborhood of the U.S. Congress, and there wouldn't be a sugar eater among them. They'd all be beer drinkers. So we can't just blame sugar. Anyway, so that was it. The British hypothesis pushed by Yudkin, uh, saying it's sugar and maybe white flour. Uh, Lee, uh, Keys in the U.S. is pushing the fat hypothesis. The U.S. had all the money. That's uh Europe was still digging out of the Second World War, and uh, they had other things to worry about still in the 1960s, so funding was much lower. So Keyes did the biggest studies, 
It was a political social conflict. It wasn't based on the data. And then in the U.S., the, there was a very active sugar lobby that Nina, you know, I've written about in my books. And the sugar lobby was pushing the fat hypothesis, right? You know, that clearly if everyone thinks it's fat, then sugar must be benign. So by the 1970s, the fat hypothesis had kind of won out. And that was it. The sugar hypothesis sort of fell into the hibernation, went into remission for 30 years until people like myself and Dr. Robert Lustig at the University of California, San Francisco started saying maybe it's sugar and not fat. But nobody, none of us knew this. When I was growing up, when I was eating a low fat diet through the 90s, I had no idea about any of this that I, you know, I was consuming an awful lot of sugar on my very healthy, mostly plant, low-fat diet. Because like all of us, we thought, you know, the problem's saturated fat and salt. And as long as we avoid those, we'll be healthy. And it's, you know, the interesting thing is books now come out. What happened, so when I wrote my investigative articles in the New York Times Magazine pieces on my first book, this was kind of news. And then Michael Pollan picked up on it a little bit even and said, this is you know, this is important stuff. And then Nina took it even further with her book, The Big Fat Surprise, and got accolades that I couldn't get seven years earlier because what I was saying was too controversial. So we've managed to sort of shift the thinking. So nowadays, the conventional wisdom, right, is the problem is processed foods, which means processed grains and vegetable oils and sugars. That's this sort of, you know, zeitgeist. But the establishment still is pushing low fat, low saturated fat diets, as Nina will have said. And the dietary guidelines are still pushing those in the American Heart Association. The public is still afraid of fat. You know, they don't know what we know, even though they're in books now and multiple books. And there's a world of low carb and ketogenic diet books that are out there and new ones coming out every month. And they're all saying the same thing. But this sort of history just fades back into the history. And people think this is an interesting opinion, but they're still going to worry about the saturated fat in their diet because that's what they've been told their whole life. Well, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get a direct message on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Someone's fearful of my life because I'm eating butter, I'm eating steak. And admittedly, I have a house full of all boys, so there's a lot of meat consumption in my home. But I think you bring up such a great point that it takes a long time for dogma to shift. And it takes a long time. If we've, if the conventional wisdom has been for 20, 30 plus years that fat is bad, people are afraid of eating fat. And I know this because I have conversations with my own family members, my mother, who's Italian, uh, trying to convince her that she needed to liberalize her avocado use and not be afraid to eat some nuts and not be afraid to use coconut oil or, you know, MCT oil. I mean, it completely blew her mind. And especially, I think women of a certain age in particular, they're already very focused, preoccupied with weight gain. And so they're, they fear that if they eat fat, they're going to get fat. But let's pivot a little bit and talk about, you know, when we're talking about these carbohydrate focused diets that have low fat, one of the reasons why people continue to overeat carbohydrates is because they're not satiated. So let's kind of pivot and talk about, you know, the foods that we know are most satiating and then, you know, kind of jump into talking about ketogenic or lower carbohydrate diets and some of the health benefits, because I think that keto also gets a bad rap because so many people do it wrong. Like there's junk food in every nutritional focus that's out there, vegan, probably not carnivore, but just about everything else. Like there's vegan junk food, there's paleo junk food, there's primal junk food, there's keto junk food. I mean, it's all out there you know, people capitalize on that. Yeah, there's a lot of issues wrapped up in that. The um, When we talk about satiety, well, first of all, I was going to talk about the fear of fat. So I've been doing this, right? I first experimented with keto, which in 2000, we still called Atkins, you know, I 20 years ago. So 21 years ago. And I, when I first wrote about this for the New York Times Magazine, I described sitting down at my breakfast, looking at my bacon and eggs and waiting for the heart attack or the rebound <laughs> obesity or whatever it was that was going to. And 20 years later, I still worry about it. I programmed it can't possibly, the amount of butter I eat can't possibly be good for me. Like bacon cannot possibly. And you see this, it's funny, the, the most 
uninformed the nutritionists are, you know, if how can this diet possibly be healthy? They allow you to eat bacon, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, can you actually show me a study, a clinical trial with and without bacon in it where the people not eating bacon are healthier? And that, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a disingenuous question because nobody's ever going to do that kind of trial, but that's what you actually need to do to know if bacon is bad for you. It's just, it seems, it's always been associated. There's certain foods that became associated with an unhealthy diet. Mm-hmm. So instead of it being a Coca-Cola and McDonald's French fries, it was always the burger. Whenever you have a picture about the unhealthy diets or the American diet being bad for you, they will show you a hamburger photo, um, along with photos of 400 pounders in you know, bad clothes at Disney World taken from the back. The idea being they ate the hamburger and that's what made them We are programmed at this point, and the younger the generation, and I've spoken to a lot of pre-COVID, I talked to a lot of dietitian classes and nutrition classes, and I had the, growing up, my mother in the 60s was believed that, you know, meat, fish, and fowl were integral to a healthy diet, so that's just what we ate with a green vegetable and a starch at every meal and an appetizer and a salad, very lucky to have a mother who was very health conscious, but then by the 90s, Mothers had been convinced that they should be avoiding fat and red meat. Now you have a generation of people who have been taught that from birth. And it's much, much harder to. And if you can give that up and eat instead uh, donuts and bagels and soy cream cheese and, you know, McDonald's French fries and feel like you're being virtuous because you're not eating meat, that seems like a good trade off. And if you're 50 or 100 pounds overweight, that seems like the best you can do because you're still trying to eat not too much, and you end up with this sort of perfect storm of bad dietary advice combined with the physiology that's now programmed to gain weight. Satiety is an interesting issue. I don't actually think in terms of satiety and hunger, okay? Um, Part of my research, part of the advantage I had as a journalist when I wrote my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, I wasn't locked into a particular discipline. And the way obesity researchers have thought about fat accumulation for 50 years is that people get fat because they eat too much. And if they eat too much, that must mean that they're either too hungry or the foods they're eating aren't satiating enough. So they continue eating after the point that they're full or they don't know that they're full. There are all these sort of concepts that are based on the idea that you get fat because you eat too much, as opposed to you get fat because your body is storing too many calories as fat. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armorous colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 
or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. There was a field, a discipline known as physiological psychology, which dates back to, you know, Pavlov and Pavlov's dogs. The assumption of that research being that underlying physiological states, I mean, that the fundamental behaviors are determined by underlying physiological states. So if you're hungry, it's not because your brain is being failing to get some satiety hormone or something. It's because your body is not receiving enough. The cells in your body are not receiving enough fuel. And if they're receiving enough fuel, then you won't be hungry and you won't go through. And that whether or not your cells are receiving enough fuel is a hormonal issue in the body. And again, it's the same hormones, insulin and glucagon and growth hormone, and these hormones that determine whether you burn calories for fuel. Or f- so the way I think about it is when you're in a condition where you're storing calories as fat, when insulin is elevated, that's going to make you keep eating because your body basically, you're and with the bodybuilders would call it an anabolic state where your body is trying to grow. So the foods that stimulate insulin secretion are going to be the foods that make you hungry. And the foods that you can eat without stimulating insulin are going to be the foods that seem more satiating. But even then, it's more complicated. I don't like the term overeating on carbohydrates because if for the kind of person who fattens easily, then there may not be almost any amount of carbohydrates that won't trigger that fat deposition. So it'll be hard to find the point at which we can eat carbs without our body still wanting to store fat. And if we're not getting enough calories, then we'll just be hungry and we'll keep eating. And if we are getting enough calories then our bodies, will store the fat and we'll despite the carbohydrates. So there's a lot of ways we've been trained to think about this that are based on this initial belief that we get back because we eat too much. And if the obesity researchers had gotten that right, we'd have been thinking about all of this differently. So it wouldn't be that some foods are satiating, like protein and fat. It would be that some foods literally make us hungrier, like the carbohydrates we consume. And that can be hugely problematic. I think as people, if they're open to it, if they're open to shifting, I always say the N of one of experimenting with what works best for your body. I think it can be profoundly interesting. And I know before we started recording, we were talking about CGMs or continuous glucose monitors and how surprised I have been despite being, you know, low carb, you know, bordering on ketogenic, how surprised I have been that certain foods that I thought were probably not all that bad for me really spiked my insulin. And so, you know, is it any surprise that yesterday when I tried to eat some berries 
that it spiked my insulin significantly and the whole rest of the day, whether it was like a psychosomatic kind of situation, but the whole day I was, you know, the whole rest of the day, I was like, wow, I mean, I don't normally have cravings and here I am having cravings. And isn't that interesting that we're talking today? Whereas today I made sure everything I've done has been protein and fat focused. I'm very, I'm full. Like there's no desire to eat more food and my CGM data completely aligns with that. Yeah, and this is, it's hard to tell, the problem with the N of ones, it's hard to tell what's a, kind of a placebo psychological effect. I have all kinds of responses to carbage foods that I, I can almost get, hang, well, I do, I get sort of the equivalent of hangovers now. If I have a carbage dinner and the next day I'll feel awful. And I, I, in all honesty, I mean, I have no idea if that's a real phenomenon or if that's somehow psychologically uh, prompted and, and if there's even a difference right between the two the other thing that happens is as you when you're keeping low carb for a long time your body loses the ability right to i mean it doesn't lose your it's like your pancreas kind of decides that it doesn't have to secrete insulin every day it's not going to get carbs so you don't have to worry about it and then and this is a common phenomenon it's been known since the 19-teens that if you want to test glucose tolerance on a, after a ketogenic diet, you've got to refeed carbohydrates for a few days to get the pancreas used to eating them. And then, so if you were eating the berries regularly, your blood sugar might have stayed better under control. You'd have gotten more insulin secretion by doing the experiment like this. You may be seeing a sort of anomalous short-term effect. Every once in a while, I decide the paleo people, maybe they know what they're talking about, and I should be having sweet potatoes or yams every day, because whenever I give a conference and somebody, I give a talk, and somebody asks me about sweet potatoes, I immediately think that we're, this is a paleo person. So I'll cook dinner for my family. My kids get a sort of healthy, conventional American diet, and my wife is mostly vegetarian, so she'll get what we're eating, minus whatever the you know, the meat, fish, or fowl is. And every once in a while, I'll make them sweet potatoes and I'll try to eat a little piece of sweet potato. And then after dinner, we get cleaned up. My wife and I usually watch an hour of Netflix or Amazon Prime video. It's great, great age of television. And I will fall asleep on the couch religiously. I will fed just as in high school, Thursday night was pasta night. And I used to go in these carb comas after the pasta meal. My mother would have to almost drag her, you know, 190 pound son from the living room couch to his bedroom. Now the same thing happens from a little piece of sweet potato. And I keep thinking if I continued to eat it, maybe my body would adapt, but I don't feel well. So I don't want to continue to eat it. Which makes complete sense. Although it's interesting because I feel like there's this kind of conventional dogma that we need to boot ourselves out of ketosis, you know, episodically, if we're doing low carb or ketogenic diets for a period of time so that our bodies aren't, you know, they are, well, the conventional wisdom that was shared with me was we want to remind our bodies we're not starving. We want to, you know, much like anything, it's some variability in our diets. I just don't know where I fall with that right now. Cause I was so surprised at how high my blood sugar went when it has been in the 70s and 80s coasting along. And I know when I was talking with Ken Berry, he was saying, anytime your blood sugar goes over 140, you're damaging, you know, the interstitial lining of your blood vessels, you can be damaging your kidneys and your eyes and, you know, being the good soldier, you know, being the obliger, I hear that. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I probably need to be more conscientious. So I'm not sure what the right answer is. And I know that listeners will be curious if there's any research that's been done on this at all. Yeah. And the answer is no, because what you want to know, right, is long-term harm. Mm-hmm. So you can make the argument that a little damage is a good thing because it keeps your defense mechanisms <laughs> working, you know? So that that would be, and this is, there's a, the world is full of hypotheses. This is one reason I wrote the case for keto. I kind of wanted to say, look, this is how, originally it was called how to think about how to eat. Mm-hmm. And we had to change that title. Um, but that's what I wanted it to, for those of us who are you know, who fatten easily, a term I picked up from the 1950s diet books, and we all know who we are, you know, for those of us who put on weight easily, we have trouble controlling our weight and our blood sugar. And now we're bombarded by information. And this is how I think we should approach this and think about it. And so, you know, Ken might be right. But even if he's right that you're doing long term damage, and you're doing this two or three times a week, or once a week, are you shortening your life by 
five years or are you shortening your life by five minutes? And we don't know, right? When these studies were done in the late 1980s to test the idea that you know, we should all keep our cholesterol and our, our LDL cholesterol low, the answer for that, assuming that everything that the establishment said about the evils of cholesterol was right, was that we would live a few weeks to a few months longer by restricting this saturated fat in our diet significantly. So all of our fear of fat was about maybe, he word, maybe lengthening our life by a few weeks to a few months. And one of the researchers who did this, and he did this study at the behest of the um, Surgeon General's office, and then this, when he got his results, the Surgeon General's office tried to prevent him from publishing it. They actually reached out to the editors at JAMA, the journal that had accepted it, and said he couldn't publish this because if he published it, nobody would eat a low-fat diet. Well, when I interviewed him, he was here in San Francisco. He said, you know, aside from sharing with me the letters and went back and forth with the Surgeon Generals, for which I was always grateful, he said, you know, this, you can live two to three months longer. It's not on your honeymoon, okay? It's at the end of your life. Right. So somebody who is going to die of 75 years old in March, who avoids saturated fat his whole life, eats like, you know, skinless chicken breasts and seed oils or pick your oils instead of butter and chicken thighs. And, you know, instead of eating like the French, they eat like the Mediterraneans, even though we know the French live a very long time. Anyway, you make the, all these sacrifices. You live instead of dying in March at 75, you die in late April. And these are the, these, this is the time in the nursing home, <laughs> okay? It's like another exercise. So how much of a difference can it possibly make? That's the question. So in this book, you know, I, there's a good argument to be made that if you're not, if you're on the borderline of ketosis, maybe the, your brain isn't getting enough ketones for fuel and that the brain fog that people often feel, but they feel this on every diet. Just the brain fog that you might feel on a keto diet might, be better if you religiously stayed in keto, in ketosis. I, that's quite possible. I don't know if it's true or not. It's also, like I said, Ken's argument is quite possible, and I don't know if that's true. But even if it's true, the question is how much do we bet? I often wonder, like, if you give up, if I'm right, and you give up sugar and flour and grains and starches and don't even eat legumes because they have a high carb content, and you go carnivore, for instance, and then what's going to kill you? Okay. Now, because we associate all the chronic diseases that we suffer from with basically overweight and obesity and diabetes and high blood sugar and high blood pressure, and those are all carb-related. So you're going to minimize the risk of all those chronic diseases, including cancer and Alzheimer's. So what do you die of? And my theory is you're 80 years old, you're in perfect health, you go to your grandson's first birthday party, you have an ice cream cone, and your heart blows up. And everybody blames it on the ketogenic diet you've been eating for the past 40 years instead of on the ice cream cone that raised your blood sugar and blew up your heart. A lot of complicated. You know, one of the problems, and I discuss this in the case for keto, is because the obesity nutrition research establishment completely failed to, you know, they came up with this idea that people get fat just because they eat too much. So they tell us all, oh, we got to eat less and exercise more. We have obesity and diabetes epidemics. The whole nation's getting fatter. They have completely and utterly failed to handle this. So they've left it up to the physicians like yourself to figure it out. And over the decades, physicians did. People like, you know, Albert Pennington in the late 1940s who worked at Pennington or uh, who worked at uh, DuPont, they're Herman Taller wrote a book called Calories Don't Count, or Robert Atkins and the famous Atkins Diet, and Mike and Mary Dan Eads, who wrote Protein Power, and a group of Tulane physicians who wrote Sugar Busters. And then people like Nina and Kai Schultz and I came along, and we, we established through our research, journalistic research, that these diets are healthy. They're not going to kill you. And while we were doing that work, people were actually doing clinical trials, establishing that rigorously. But now you've got this world of theories and hypotheses and diet books, and everyone's got to say something new. You can't write a diet book and say, just do what Atkins said. I can because I'm a journalist, but physicians can't. So as soon as you decide I'm going to write a book, you've got to write something different than everyone else. So you've got to have a different hypothesis or timing or, you know, so now you're pushing 
you know, I mean, there are all kinds of variations on it. And some of them may be important advances, but there's no way to know. And some of them may be important observations, you know, maybe just a little bit of elevated blood sugar is going to shorten your life by five years, not five weeks, but maybe five years. Maybe it'll be the difference between, you know, a cancer diagnosis or not. I don't know. You know, not one in 10,000 people, but one in 10 people. But there's no way to know because the mainstream establishment has failed at their job. Such important points. I definitely want to at least be mindful of your time. But one of the questions that came up with some frequency when I mentioned that we were going to be connecting was carbohydrate addiction. And obviously, I know that there is, this is real. This is not something that's just contrived, you know, just based on uncertainly what I have read. So for people who are unable to control their consumption of carbohydrates, meaning they can abstain from eating a cookie or ice cream, but as soon as they have one or a scoop, it puts them in a position where they then, you know, slide down the path of, you know, overconsumption, and then they're back to this, you know, kind of powerfully addictive qualities. What has been your experience, you know, when you're talking and doing research on carbohydrate addiction? Because I do believe that it's a real entity, you know, much to the point you were making earlier about, you know, the profound hormonal impact of having elevated insulin levels amongst a myriad of other hormones that get activated. Well, one of the things I did in this latest book, The Case for Keto, so I interviewed 120 plus physicians who out of what I estimate is a few tens of thousands in the world who now think like we do. And I wanted to understand that what we're beginning to see is enough clinical experience that people can start talking about what works from the physician perspective and what doesn't work and the challenges to the patient. And many of these physicians thought of what they did not as, you know, prescribing the clinics, not as weight loss clinics or family medicine clinics, but as carbohydrate addiction rehab clinics. Um, How do you get people off carbs? So there's a very good physiological explanation for the craving and the love we all have of carbs, which is when you start thinking about eating carbohydrates, your body will secrete insulin in response. That's like the Pavlovian thing I talked about. You start just as Pavlov's dogs would salivate when he rang a bell, you know, I could say, you know, hot, warm, hot, fresh donuts, and I'll start salivating. But it means my pancreas also just secreted insulin, saying, oh, this guy's about to eat carbs, and we got to get insulin in the bloodstream in advance. And what insulin does is it tells the lean tissue to take up the blood sugar, the glucose. So your blood sugar is going to start dropping once you start thinking about eating. And it tells your fat tissue to hold on to the fat because it's preparing for the food that's coming. Once your insulin's elevated, it's telling your fat tissue to hold on to fat and your protein, the protein you consume to be used for cell uh, repair and growth and carbs. It's telling actually the mitochondria in your cells, the, the energy factories in your cells to burn carbs, not fat or protein. And so carbohydrates literally become your fuel. And if you've got this condition called insulin resistance, which if you're, you know, overweight, obese, pre-diabetic or diabetic, you're type two diabetic, you're, you are insulin resistant. Then for most of the day, probably except for a little window while you're asleep, your body is looking to burn carbohydrates. And as your blood sugar comes down, you're not getting the access to the fat to replace it because your insulin's high. So you're going to crave carbs. And so you drink sodas all day long, right? Because you're basically feeding your body a little bit of carbohydrates and feeding your liver specifically all day long. You snack on carbs because the idea of having, you know, a cheese and a meat plate at 10 in the morning, two hours after breakfast is like most people are going to be put off by that. And one reason they'll be put off by that is because their body doesn't want to burn fat and protein. It wants to burn carbs. Give me the crackers, the donuts. So even, and again, the part of the, the way I think about this now is once your body is dependent on carbs for fuel, your brain will respond with these markers of addiction. When you eat carbs, you'll get the reward, the dopamine response that you get from other addictive foods. And we all know who we are. You know, my wife can have, she can go to dinner, order a dessert, 
have two bites and then push it aside, not think about it again. I'll go, I'm with her. I don't order a dessert, right? Because I'm virtuous. I don't eat carbs. Then I start staring at her dessert. Then I have a bite of her dessert. And then I stare at her dessert. And then I just, she's pushed it aside. And then I just grab it and put it in front of me and I'm going to finish it. I, that bite makes me crave. It doesn't, there's no way the sugar satiates me. This is, it just, when I'm done with that dessert, I don't crave sugar any less than I did when I started. I just realize that I can't have two desserts. That would be foolish. But that kind of urge, that kind of craving is magnified. It would be magnified the heavier I am. It'd be magnified the more insulin resistant I am. It's hard for a lean, healthy person to imagine the carb cravings of someone who's not. And um, how do you break it? Well, Telling people to eat in moderation is not the solution any more than it is telling an alcoholic to drink in moderation or a cigarette smoker to smoke in moderation or a heroin addict to only shoot up in moderation. It's like you need, and this is when these people think about rehab, you need to go probably cold turkey. And the good thing is we know physiologically, if you get rid of the carbs and replace them with fat, then your body will switch over. It'll become what's called fat adapted. And now you're burning fat for fuel. And you will start craving fat-rich foods instead of carb-rich foods. And this was demonstrated in rats in the 1930s, again, in this field of physiological psychology. You hear it all the time in the anecdotal world, but you have just like it takes you three weeks to get through the worst of alcohol addiction and smoking addiction. That's why alcohol rehab is 28 days, because by 28 days, you're over the worst of it. It probably takes that long for at least some people to convert in our world, to get rid of the carb addiction. And then it's something you fight for the rest of your life. The only reason I'm not as negative, about, I'm skeptical of the you know keto, low carb, high fat, processed food industry. But a lot of people, they're going to foods to replace the junk they're eating now and to help them get through the carb addiction. So, and in all honesty, there are still times I crave a good, candy bar and Susie's good fats, you know, will do it for me. But anyway, that's the issue. So these, these physicians I spoke to, they often, they said, said, look, you know, we know we have all these lessons we learned about, you know, in the addiction world about how to deal with addiction. So if, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you don't get a job in a liquor store, right? You don't get a job as a bartender. I mean, maybe you want to challenge yourself, but it's a, for most of us, it's a foolhardy thing to do. You don't have alcohol in the house. You know, if you're a smoker, when I used to, I was a smoker, I trying to quit smoking. It wasn't enough to just throw out the pack of Marlboro lights that I ate or to break it up. Because if I put in the trash and broke it up three hours later, I would be able to find a half of one that I could still smoke. So I had to put water in it, you know, to death because otherwise I was going to smoke it. And we just, you learn those tricks. A lot of this, and this is a advice I got from physicians, you, it takes practice, the longer you do it, the better you get at it. Things that seem unsustainable, quitting smoking seemed unsustainable to me for 10 years before I finally succeeded. And I learned tricks. Okay, don't go into a, don't, don't go to a, a club with my friends Friday night if they're smoking and think that I can not smoke. So I just can't do that anymore because I don't want to become a smoker. Now I can because no one's allowed to smoke in clubs. Now I don't go to clubs because I'm a you know, 60-year-old, 65-year-old man. Um, Anyway, this is the way, you know, the, again, what I'm trying to communicate in the case for keto is you learn to think like this and you take it one step at a time. So it's not as hard as you think. And what next thing you know, it's been six months. You're pretty happy living without carbs and you're very happy that you're now healthy, that your body, you've shed 20, 30 or 40 pounds, you're blood sugar is under control, your blood pressure is, if you're a type 2 diabetic, you're off your medications, you know, and these have all been shown in clinical trials. This is, you know, what happens when you give up these carbs. Well, slow and steady absolutely wins. I want all my listeners to know that Case for Keto is the first book I'm recommending for 2021. I'd love for you to share with the listeners, what are you doing next? And what's the easiest way to connect with you on social media or on your website? My next book will be on diabetes specifically. And I have to admit, all my, all my books have taken a historical perspective. I work under the assumption that 
if you don't know the history of your beliefs, you don't know whether they're true or not. So literally to know what you're talking about. So I become obsessed with the history of diabetes, dietary therapy for diabetes. And I hope I don't lose too many readers. I'll apologize in advance. I'm active on Twitter, not active enough. Twitter is another addiction. I'm not sure anyone is healthiest with. And my website is garytalbs.com and people can reach me through the, the contact slot on my website. And the book is available wherever fine books are sold. And if you have a independent local bookstore that's still open, please buy it there. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'll look forward to having you back when your new book comes out. And, and I do think that you know, people are curious to understand more about this whole concept of blood sugar dysregulation, largely because so many of us are insulin resistant, if not diabetic. And unless we start changing our, our choices, more and more of us will end up in that direction. So thank you for your time today. Okay. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.